0: Well, hello, and welcome to Beth Tikkun and the Spiritual Seasons series, where we are looking at the weekly Torah portions in the light of the overall calendar and God's pattern of spiritual development that we can see play out in the year and beyond. This week, we are in Parsha Shoftim, from near the end of Deuteronomy chapter 16 through the first nine verses of chapter 21. Shoftim means judges. And so listen for the idea of judgment three times even in the first verse of the portion. You shall appoint judges and enforcers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. And so the root of judge here is Shafat, which is also the root of the word mishpat, which we have near the end of the verse here, this first verse. Parsha Shoftim takes us right through the middle of the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy. So we can assume that it has a special significance to the whole book with it being in the middle. In fact, we usually find this idea of servant leadership. Right, We're talking about judges and other leaders in this portion. And so we usually find this idea of servant leadership right at the center of God's designs. And that's something that Dr. Halisa Aylwine brings out in her creation gospel teachings, which I highly recommend. I'll put a link in the notes there. The center of the menorah, remember, that center candle, the stalk in the middle, is called the shamash, and that's the servant leader of the candles. Well, Shoftim's diverse topics continue Moses' review of the commandments from Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But Moses also adds here some new commandments that will come into play once they get into the land. But in my mind, all the topics here fit into two related ideas. One, Israel's various types of leaders, and two, some of the major issues they must deal with and teach the people about. And so I'm going to list out the topics now and try to listen for these two ideas. Once again, the portion is comprised of Israel's various types of authorities and the most important topics for them to deal with in their duties, in the course of their duties. So in the portion we find commandments regarding appointing judges and upholding justice generally. We find commandments to uh, not plant trees or set up stones associated with worship and how to judge an idolater. Is it kind of attached to those commandments. Uh, we find the establishment of a Levitical high court at Jerusalem to handle the most difficult cases. And so this is the biblical source for the creation of the Sanhedrin, right? Which we read about a lot in the apostolic scriptures. Have you ever wondered where they're getting the Sanhedrin from? Well, it's here in Shoftim. Uh, We find here laws regarding establishing kings and other laws for kings. And so here we have the establishment of the Israeli monarchy. Next comes provisions for the priests and Levites from the tithes and sacrifices. Next comes prohibitions on child sacrifice linked to the Canaanite worship. Also prohibitions on divination and fortune telling and sorcery. A big topic that the authorities have to deal with. Next, uh, the prophecy that a prophet will come like Moses, who the people are to listen to. And connected to that is a repetition about false prophets and testing, uh, testing the prophets. Then the command to establish cities of refuge is here again. And so here I just want to mention, kind of as an aside, that it says that, If someone is found to be a murderer, right, if you flee to a city of refuge, you're not home safe. There has to be a trial then. You're just safe until the trial. But if someone is put on trial and they're found to actually have done the murder, then the elders of the city that the guy fled from to the city of refuge, they're to personally take hold of him and hand him over to the avenger of blood, personally. And it says, your eyes shall not pity. Well, next comes the command to not move boundary stones, which brings in a lot of ideas about property. Next, we have laws about witnesses and especially about discerning and purging from the nation a false witness. And so the malicious witness is to be put to death so that the nation will hear and fear and never do this evil again. And so as with the murderer who had, to, who had fled to the city of refuge, the text here says that when dealing with a malicious witness, again, your eye shall not pity. And it goes on there and it says, it shall be life for life. Here concerning this person who tried to, you know, who testified falsely regarding someone, it says it shall be life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Well, next comes a whole chapter about laws for going to war. a big part of life for the nation. And so there it says that distant cities are to be offered terms of surrender. But cities within the land, Canaanite cities within the land, um, are to be utterly wiped out. And when they go to war, the priests will first address them, maybe the high priests will first address them and tell them to not fear <clears throat> because God is fighting with them. And then the enforcers, kind of the word for policemen or officers, they're to address them in order to weed out Firstly, those who have great unfinished business and they haven't yet tasted of the fruit of their endeavors. God doesn't want us to do a bunch of work in vain. And so those people are to be weeded out and go home and not go into battle. And along with them are to go any who are fearful uh, so that their fear doesn't affect the rest of the fighting men. Well, lastly is the case of how the town leaders are to absolve themselves of blood guilt when a body is found in a field with no witnesses as to how the person died. And in in this case, a cow is killed in a specific way and its blood is used as a means of expressing the town's innocence. Well, um, after that summary of the portion, Let's pause now before we go deeper in the text to talk about the new month that has just begun, the month of Elul, which just started, let's see, it's Thursday last night, and we're in the first day of Elul, and it's the sixth month in the year. So I'm planning out these thoughts for today. It struck me more than ever what a beautiful puzzle. God has given us with this month. They're all puzzles that he wants us to unlock. Unlock, And this one just I found particularly beautiful this time. So each clue to the nature of the month by itself has its own kind of luminous shine, we can say. But when they all come together within the framework of salvation, the resulting picture is, I, I find, just breathtaking. So it's a picture that, both affirms the wisdom and teachings of the nation of Israel, the priestly nation to whom the oracles of God have been entrusted, right? We need to affirm what has been given to them, you know, whenever possible. Um, But beyond doing that, it also is a picture really that is not complete without knowledge of Yeshua. And so it brings together these two, I think, in a unique way. Well, I say unique way, but really, um, anywhere we look, if we can grab hold of the Jewish scholarship and knowledge and combine that with the knowledge of Yeshua, it's always going to be a much greater light. Well, let's start with the meaning of Elul, this word. So the Babylonian Akkadian word Elul means harvest. So the journey so far, starting in the first month of Nisan, has been leading to this month, this harvest, when our own contribution to the journey of salvation begins to reach its high point for this half of the yearly journey. What we can do, what we can contribute, really it comes to its highest point here. Next month is a lot about the work that Yeshua does on our behalf. And here we're really given our last chance to to give it a go here. And, and have something to do with our salvation, which God wants for, for us, so that our salvation can be really worth something to us, and not just a free gift. Well, the highest um, spiritual harvest now in the year, uh, in this half of the year, begins in Elul, and will continue for 40 days through the first 10 days of Tishrei, which, which is the seventh month, the next month, bringing us right up to Yom Kippur, so 30 days plus the 10 days brings us to the 10th of Tishrei. That's Yom Kippur. Um, and that's really when our work of seeing and learning and shaping is, is done. Right? We have, there's not more to do then. Uh, until the next journey begins, and uh, that, that is. And so at that point at Yom Kippur, we are told, to just wait upon the Lord, to wait upon the finishing and fulfilling work of the Messiah. Well, okay, that's looking ahead to the seventh month. The good news for us here today is that as we begin this season of Elul, we have time and time is so precious. We have time now to take action, to be ready for that momentous day of Yom Kippur. And so we have time to prepare. In terms of the climate and agriculture, which is one of the lenses that we want to look at each of the months through, well, in Israel, uh, the heat is starting to break here in Ohio too. And the grape harvest is now fully underway. The grain farmers in Israel may even begin, it's a little early, but they may even begin starting to prepare the ground for the next grain crop, breaking it up to ready it to receive the rains. And so a change is beginning, and around the earth we can feel it now. So here in Ohio, the daisies are in bloom and are receiving frequent visits from a profusion of butterflies. There were just butterflies everywhere in my yard the other day. It was really pretty. The tent caterpillars have spun their hazy nests up in the trees, right? If you look up in the trees, you'll see those blobs. (laughs) The leaves are starting to look a little bit tired on the trees, a little bit eaten through here and there, in need of replacement, uh, the leaves are. Fruit trees are are bending under the weight of swollen pears and apples, and some trees are already starting to drop their first leaves. Well, in Israel, the rains have been absent for some time now, and that's, as we've been saying, a physical reflection of a, a kind of separation of heaven and earth a separation of of God and mankind, a separation of husband and wife, such that the wife has not received what she needs for fertility. And so a kind of rift has opened between the two. And Rabbi Slifkin says that in Israel now, the expectancy for the return of the rains really begins to grow within the people. The wife, prepares to relate again to the husband. And so prepare is the word of the moment here. If she listens closely, you know, if the bride kind of closes her eyes and and listens, she can hear in the air the whispered invitation, return, O maiden of Israel. So this call to the wayward bride this um, this call for her to return is the language of Jeremiah 31. If you go back and read Jeremiah 31, especially the beginning of that chapter, um, that is the chapter that is in the air now. The calling to the bride that proceeds comes before the outpouring of the new covenant in the second half of Jeremiah 31. We can say that what the bride is beginning to sense now is the impending new life and that new life is the gracious new covenant in Yeshua's blood presented on Yom Kippur. That's what's already in the air and it's what's telling us get ready because that is coming and you want to be ready for that day. So we see that in Jeremiah 31, this language of the bride and the calling to the bride and the return of the bride before we get to that new covenant. Well, as we dig into little a bit deeper, let's understand that there are some months in which God is the prime mover, the initiator. And there are some months, on the other hand, where he sits back a bit to give us the chance to respond. So he gives the seed, then steps back to give us the time to nurture the seed and bring forth its life, its potential. And our response then evokes a further response from God. And it kind of goes back and forth like that. And so in other words, there are months when the ball is in our court, so to speak. And so let's think about that for a minute, how it's going back and forth. If we go back all the way to Nisan, that's when God we can say the, the ball is in God's court and he's shining a great light from above that gets everything going for this half of the journey. And in shining that light, right, that light of spring that's so welcome um, after the cold winter, that light is seed. And so it's the seed of truth. We respond in the second month, during the counting of the Omer, by doing some early work on ourselves. And we compared that early work at that time to learning how to walk with him. In the third month, then moving one month forward, another great light from above. And that is Shavuot and the giving of the Torah. And then our response, another, the next month, is the um what we're going to do with that Torah in the fourth month of Tammuz. Moving forward again, the fifth month, the month of Av, we would expect it to be the light from above again. Well it's a little different, but it is the same idea. So that's the month of Av and it is very top down of being father. Right? That's the word for father. And in that month he is pictured as the powerful lion, Leo, that takes a flame and sets it to the timbers of his own home and burns down his temple. And on Tishbav, the ninth of Av. Well, now we come to this month. So the last one was the top-down month of Av. The sixth month of Elul brings us back to our response once again. The Jewish sources call. Um, The idea of the ball being in our court, they call it arousal from below, and they call God's sort of top-down action as arousal from above. The work we do now should arouse a response of compassion and mercy from God in the next month, the seventh month. Well, the fact that the onus is on us to some degree this month is reflected in the hush of the month, right? the bodily ability associated with the month. And so for Elul, the hush is simply called action. It is a month in which we are specially empowered by God's design to gather up what we have seen um, in the month of seeing which was two months ago, and what we have heard in the month of hearing, which was last month. And we weigh all of that and we take action this month action for change, action for growth. Well, to put slightly different language on it, Shimona Zukernik says that the energy of last month, which is Av, is more of a masculine energy, whereas the energy of Elul is more feminine. And so we don't need to look any further than the names of the months to see this with Av meaning father, again very masculine, and Elul meaning harvest, which is the feminine position of receiving, right? In Hebraic thinking and in the language, something that receives is feminine. Well here in particular, harvest is the receiving of seed, right? So you can't get more feminine than that, really. So again, this is a month to work with the light and seed and truth and revelation that God has given and to incubate it and to begin bringing forth new life. Even now we begin to bring forth that truth into physical reality. Well, it's just the beginning of that process, however. Really, the winter is very much centered on that whole process of bringing the thing forth into the physical world. Well, all of this feminine language associated with Elul is giving expression to the muzzle of the month, which is the virgin, Virgo. So the idea of the virgin is certainly feminine uh, to begin with, But this image brings more. It's not just a woman. It's a specific type of woman, right? Um, It's really emphasizing an innocent woman, which is a little bit strange to find at this point in the calendar, to be honest. Virgo is indicating that this is a month in which God is helping to provide the energy that the engaged bride needs to take action regarding guilt and innocence. So let me say that again. It's, there's an energy that God provides in this month for the bride to take some kind of action related to guilt and innocence. And so the picture starts to come a little bit clearer with the mazel, but let's keep going here. Um, let's ask the question what can we do regarding guilt? In innocence, <clears throat> right? It's not for us to pronounce ourselves innocent. <laughs> what are we? What is this doing here, Virgo the Virgin? Um, isn't it the case that God just spent this time of the three weeks and the destruction on the ninth of Av to really focus on our guilt, and so. Um, the temple itself went up in flames, and we saw that our guilt has caused the groom to turn his back on us. Shouldn't it be up to him to turn back toward us, right? He turned away. He destroyed his temple. You know, really it's up to him to turn back to us, and so we can't undo our guilt, So let let me bring some of these ideas together. We're about to bring them together. But um, how do we account for all of the following energies working together? One, the harvest, the goal for the first half of the year. Two, arousal from below. Three, the month of action. Four, the month of innocence when we have just experienced so clearly our guilt? Well, the answer that ties everything together, the answer to the riddle of Elul is one word, shuva, Shuva, we might say, repentance. Elul is known first and foremost as the month of repentance, the month of return, return to our groom, the month of returning to our source even, Repentance begins now and is emphasized for 40 days, all the way through the 10 days of awe in the seventh month, culminating in Yom Kippur. So repentance is the harvest that the first half of the yearly journey has been preparing us for. This is the big fruit, repentance. Um, Repentance is what we do when we've become personally responsible to the Torah right, Shavuot, then suffered a break in relationship because of our unfaithfulness. Repentance is what we do now as he puts the ball in our court and gives us the ability to act, right, action, take action, to act from our own volition and free will, right? He's not going to do that action for us, <clears throat> but he provides a certain energy that helps us to act. Repentance is what we do when we see that we are guilty, and we want to return to a place of innocence, and repentance is what the Jewish sages, what the Jewish sages have for centuries said, um, is sort of at the root of the month of Elul. The journey has led us to this shuva, repentance, return. <coughs> so again, it's just wonderful to see here the seemingly almost disconnected pieces all taking up their place to speak in unison. Such a clear message. So yes, he is a God who hides himself, but he hides himself in such a way that he can be found if we have the eyes to see. And in these latter days of world history, he is opening our eyes to see and praise him for it. You know, one of the ways he's doing that is he's putting all of this knowledge at our fingertips on the internet and we can be filling our ears with, you know, while we're washing the dishes with the words of some great sage from some distant century. What other generation has had this kind of access to the conversation, the grand conversation through the centuries? And so I'm very thankful to those organizations that put all of this information online and all these wonderful teachers who God has moved to step up to to put their information online for us. Well, there's a lot more to say about Elul that we don't have time for now. If we want to get to our next uh, topic here of Shoftim, or if we want to start opening up this Torah portion of Shoftim, So we'll come back to the topics of Elul and Shuva next week. For now, let me suggest that our practical assignment for the week is to come up with the areas of our lives that we want to weigh carefully now on the scales. Let's make a list of the categories in our lives that we want to probe and consider to see how we're doing. Rabbi Raskin suggests Incorporating into our self-examination the three garments of the soul, and those are thought, speech, and action. This is how our soul expresses itself through thought and speech and action. And so we can apply each of these three realms, these big overarching realms, to the more specific categories that we want to examine, like... For example, maybe your list will have relationships to your spouse and your family in general and your spiritual community and your neighbors. So, for example, in relationship to your spouse, take it in three pieces. How are you doing in your thought life toward your spouse? Right? Only you know that. How are you doing with your speech toward your spouse? How are you doing with your action? toward your spouse and other ways. And so we can apply the three garments to how we're doing with using our time efficiently, how we're doing with what enters our ears and our, those are our eyes, our, our ears and our eyes and our mouths, how we're doing with the use of the finances God has given us, and in and, and every area of our life. Shuvah begins with, you know probing in this it's a it's a methodical thing that we can do um this kind of deep inspection and so there's a lot to say here but understand this important point repentance is not about feeling guilty for a while and then moving on as before thinking our job is done i mean i think there is an emotional guilt response here but that's not the goal. Um, the goal is not primarily an emotional one, seeing and, and then feeling guilt. Repentance is much less about feeling guilty and much more about taking action, small actions to correct our course, right? The course he has us on, right? This course that God has laid out for us and that we have chosen with him, And little adjustments need to be done. And so we have to have a time in the year and and a process for doing that. And here we are. Well, we're not necessarily aiming for the sky here, just for the next steps that are within our reach to walk the path before us more faithfully. And we want to do this examination and course correcting now in the month of Elul, the month of action. We might think of doing a lot of that in the 10 days. Really, we need to do it before that. We need to do it now. This is the time for it. And so we want to come to Rosh Hashanah with hearts and minds at rest in the knowledge that we are ready for God's outpouring of mercy through his son. We want to be joyous on Yom Kippur. Even though we are fasting on that day, we we come to the fast knowing that in a way That fast is our last task and a chain of action stretching back into the month of Elul, a chain that we have engaged with fully. The time to repent is now. And so, of course, believers know that our actions are not enough and will never be enough to get us to the goal. But this understanding that our ultimate salvation does not depend on us this understanding is inherent in Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur exists because we can never do enough to earn our salvation. So this time of Shuva is not about us earning salvation. It's about being wholehearted in our walk with God. That's a key word here. We want to show God that we are wholeheartedly devoted to him. It's about giving our best and trusting God with the rest. And so if we prepare now by doing Shiva now, as we receive atonement, on, and, you know, as we get to that moment of Yom Kippur, and as we receive atonement on Yom Kippur through the blood of Yeshua, we come to that day knowing that we have expressed a wholehearted devotion to God. And there's a, there's a kind of rest that we can enter into then at that moment. Okay, now all I have to do is just not eat, pray too, um, but it kind of opens the doorway to joy, right? Yom Kippur is anciently called one of the two most joyous days in the calendar. Well, let's make sure that we can um, enter into that joy on Yom Kippur, on that day that we receive atonement. Well, before we leave the topic of Elul um, today, I want to share a few quick giving stories, little snapshots, really. We are told that one of the practical things we can do in Elul is to increase in our tzedakah this month. And we talked about tzedakah last week. Increase this month in our tzedakah, in our giving. So let these little snippets of generosity an encouragement for us in doing that. Giving is very near to God's heart, and when we give selflessly, God does powerful things. When we give, he does little miracles that can actually be very big in people's lives. I think he sets people up for this moment when someone just gives spontaneously to them, and he just breaks their heart in that moment. And so, God really uses our giving to change people's hearts. And it doesn't have to be a lot. It just has to be at the right moment. You know? And so we need to be open to seeing when that moment comes. Well, the first two stories um, come from Reader's Digest, of all places. And the first one comes from Cindy Earls from Ada, Oklahoma. And she says, When my friend and I were injured in a car accident... A family from out of state stopped to help. So this was right when the accident was happening. Seeing we were hurt, they drove us to the hospital and stayed there until we were released. They then took us home, got us food, right? Imagine their car was probably smashed up. So they took them home, got them food, and they made sure we were settled in. Amazingly, they interrupted their vacation to help us. Well, I think these kind strangers understood that they were made to witness this car accident for a reason. They were put there for a reason. It wasn't coincidence. And so much of our giving of time and service, especially, right, there's there's not so much money involved here as the giving of time and service. And so much of that comes um, when we recognize that God has a plan for this moment And that plan is different from our careful plan that we had laid out for ourselves. They had planned out their vacation, but God said, take a day out of your vacation and show kindness to these people. And in obedience, those people said, let's put our plan aside. God has another path for us today. Well, the second that was sent into Reader's Digest that I'm going to share here is from Nadine Chandler from Winthrop, Massachusetts. And she says, I was driving cross country to start a new job. What began as a fun adventure turned into a nightmare when I realized I had run through most of my money and still had a ways to go. I pulled over and let the tears flow. That's when I noticed the unopened farewell card my neighbor had shoved into my hand as I left. I pulled the card out of the envelope and $100 dropped out. Just enough to get me through the remainder of my trip. Later, I asked my neighbor why she had enclosed the money. She said I had a feeling it would help. Well, imagine your frustration and fear when you find that you are a thousand miles away from everyone you know and you don't have enough money to get to the end of the journey. It's a desperate moment like that that makes a small act of generosity, turns that small act of generosity into a life-changing experience, right? When someone is so distraught like that, what am I going to (laughs) do, You know, that $100 goes a little bit further in that moment for you in a spiritual sense. Well, the last story today comes from a number of giving stories uh, collected and shared by Mark Chernoff. Someone wrote the following to him. Times haven't been easy lately, but people have been kind. We live in a lower middle class neighborhood. Not, Not the richest folks here. My wife was just diagnosed with breast cancer last week, so my 14-year-old son decided that he wanted to raise money to help pay for some of her medical expenses. His idea was to go door-to-door around the neighborhood with hair clippers and let people shave a part of his head for a small donation of their choosing. He asked me whether a $100 goal would be too much I told him not to get his hopes up. He came back home 10 minutes ago with a bald head and $1,225. Three people gave him $100 bills. Well, I don't know what you were like at age 14, but I certainly would have dreaded, uh, you know, showing up at school bald. <laughs> But here was a young man who didn't let the vanity of youth get in the way of his good deed for his mom. Well, with that background now, especially uh, about the month of Elul and Teshuva, let's turn our attentions to placing Shoftim in the progression of Torah portions and in the calendar. <laughs> so first of all, let's notice that Sometimes last week's portion of Re'eh brings in the month of Elul, and sometimes Shoftim does. And both of these speak directly to the move toward um, Teshuvah, toward Teshuvah in the month. Re'eh, you know, it's like God is saying, Re'eh, look backward through your journey, see, Um See what has happened in your journey and look forward to to the two paths that stretch out in front of you. And then Shoftim, you know, judge yourself, Israel. We see and we judge and we take action. And speaking of the action related to judgment, Shoftim begins not only with judge, Right place judges at your gates, but also place Shoterim enforcers at your gates so It's quite amazing really right enforcers meaning what's decided needs to be followed through with action action and so it's really quite amazing um, Just the brevity here with just a few keywords built into the calendar uh, that convey sort of the breath of this complex moment in the journey. It's, it's just the height of poetry, really. <clears throat> Repent, Israel, by seeing the blessing and the curse, and place at your gates judges and enforcers, enforcers to make manifest the judgment. And on top of what we hear in these words now, um. They also spoke to particular people at a particular time, um, these words did. They, they were addressed to specific people at a specific time, and they had a surface-level meaning. The practical instructions for a generation 3,335 years ago. And so that's the first meaning, before we even get to these other ones, and it applies to us also in the same practical ways. We need to, to create offices for judges and for policemen. Um, and so there's that meaning to begin with and that meaning to that generation 3,300 years ago. But as we go deeper, God has structured these words to speak to us quite personally On this very day, today, three millennia and three centuries down the line, it's really kind of mind-boggling. How can you lose with a God like this who can so structure this thing to speak to that generation, to speak to us one message, to speak to us another very personal message today? Well, Moses' shift in this portion to authority, the topic of authority, Actually, it's quite logical here, just thinking in terms of where it's fitting in the Torah portions. He began his detailed recitation of the Torah last week in Re'eh with the foundation pieces. Um, and so listen again to the foundation pieces Moses um, chooses, uh, chooses um, to begin this recitation of the Torah with. Um, because it's good to review what what Moses thinks is most important. So in Re, -Re, Moses addresses the need to choose God, the proper way to worship him, the testing of a prophet who is speaking for God, the food laws, tithes, and the appointed times, the Moedim. And so these are foundation stones, what Moses decides to cover next is authority: the judges, enforcers, priests, kings, and prophets. These authority figures, in a way, represent God to the people, and it's a priority to establish them and instruct them, instruct them uh, so these um, establishing them, instructing them is coming relatively early here in this review of the Torah. So speaking of this representing of God to the people, Yeshua talks about this in the Brit Hadashah reading for Shoftim in John 14 when he says to Philip, can't you see Philip that I represent the Father to you because I am in him and he is in me and everything I say, everything I say to you comes directly from the Father. That's a paraphrase of course. And so if the authorities God gives us represent him to us, they must be clean and holy vessels for the word he speaks through them. They must be above bribery and every lowly motive. They are the human connections between God and the people because they speak his word to us. They help to teach the people how to walk with God and they enforce the boundaries of the Torah. And so they must be beyond reproach. And that must be emphasized here at the beginning. One idea we shouldn't miss in the placement of Shovtim here in the Torah and in the calendar is that if we do the work of judging ourselves now, if we do that work, there is less need for God to judge us harshly at the time appointed for judgment, which we are told is the period uh, from Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, the defense attorney can stand up there on our behalf on that day and say, "He's sorry, he's going to change." But how much weightier is it when that defense attorney can stand up there and say, "My client has tripped up a bit, but he's already shown his remorse by searching his soul and making some real changes already." And we don't, we don't need to doubt where his heart and mind is, because he's showing it through his actions already, right? That's a powerful witness for us. Well, moving on now, we have time here to dip into one element of the portion God impressed upon me this week. In the end, we'll connect this subject to Yeshua. Uh, It's not a topic that I dip into very often in these teachings, but If there's a place for it, I think it's here in Parsha Shoftim. We might call um, or summarize the idea by saying um, justice for the individual, firm justice, you know, exercise the law as it's meant to be exercised for the individual is mercy for the community. Be kind of harsh with the individual. That's a kind of mercy for the community. Well, I mentioned in the summary that there are a couple of cases here where people misstep so egregiously in such such a profound way that Moses says, show them no pity. These are the cases of the murderer, one who murders, and the malicious witness, the witness who lies to the court in order to ruin someone. Really, they're murdering their reputation in a way. So the same language is used in both cases. Your eyes shall not pity. In the case of the murderer, the elders of his town are to retrieve him personally from the city of refuge to which he has fled, and they are to hand him over to the avenger of blood, as I said before. And so that the guilt for shedding innocent blood will be purged from the nation. In the second case, Moses says that what the malicious witness wanted to do to his neighbor is to be done to him instead. Remember, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. And so, he is to be purged from the nation, and the nation will hear and fear And never again will such evil be done among them. And so the community is in mind with these harsh judgments. The community must be protected in these cases. Sin is infectious. Likewise, fear of just punishment is infectious. Fear of that punishment is infectious. It is not compassion to spare the individual and inflict great harm on the whole nation. And to sort of erode the nation's um, walls and boundaries for for doing what is right, a great harm is caused there. And so, in these cases, the death sentence strengthens the community against the kinds of sin that tear a nation apart. In our modern world, which is increasingly one culture, right? We're being united through our technology. We are often seeing harm inflicted upon the society because of a misguided compassion for the individual. The real problem here is that we fail to recognize how interconnected we are and how very greatly our individual decisions and lifestyles affect the whole body. It might be helpful to picture ourselves here in this way. Imagine that we are all living in a shallow pond and every move we make causes waves. Every choice we make creates ripples that are felt to some degree across the entire pond. People say, what do you care what happens in the privacy uh, of another person's home? You know, What business is that of yours? Well, if you could keep the effects of your choices contained within your home, you might be right. But you can no more keep the effects of your private choices contained within your bedroom than you can stop the waves from racing outward after dropping a stone in a quiet pond. Real social justice requires real consequences for sin, period. Anything less is going to weaken the whole body. It's not a surprise that a lot of this false compassion for the individual is originating here in America because... We have a very strong pull in us toward individuality and independence. We could even call it a spirit of independence here. It's a gift when it's channeled properly, and it's a curse when it is not. Many of our founding fathers and mothers would not settle for being controlled religiously, so they left their homelands and came here. And they carried inside them the seed of independent thinking, in which they used in a good way in in those generations. Our great ability to innovate here in America, right? Come up with inventions and think outside the box. Well, that's an outgrowth of this spirit of independence. But what we're seeing now is that same independent spirit is being turned to the lie that we can atomize ourselves, that we can somehow exist completely independent, like separate atoms, separate little worlds spinning on our own. And so, to some degree, our technology and our washing machines and our dishwashers and our robot lawnmowers help us to live this independent life. But it's a mirage, it's an illusion. We are being naively told that we can even choose our own morality. We hear things like, it's my truth. Well, there's no such thing as my truth or your truth. There's truth, period, and everything else falls short of truth. So to the degree your truth or my truth is different from the truth, it's a lie, and it will result in death. And not just death for me or you, it's death for everyone, right? The ripples go out. The definition of truth is the Word of God, it's the Bible, it's the Torah. If your truth or mine doesn't match up to the definition of truth, then it ain't true. And I need to care about that because you and me both are making ripples with every word and every action. Even with every thought we have, we are making ripples and waves. And believers in America kind of dropped the ball. Believers did. When we said, what that person is doing is wrong, but I guess that's his life and his choice, and I can't really do anything about it. And it's not really a big deal if he has legal protections for his lifestyle choices. Fine, take the protections and leave us alone. You do you, and I'll do me. Let's live peacefully in our separate realities. Well, it doesn't work that way, because our children are going to the same schools, and they have to be taught something. Um, Whose version of truth are they going to be taught? It doesn't work that way because we shop at the same stores. It doesn't work that way because we see the same advertisements. The fact of the matter is that those of us who accept and honor the truth need to do everything we can, everything we can do legally to insist that others live according to the truth. We can't accept the condoning and the legalizing of sin. We can't accept that. Every compromise on that front will result in death for everyone. Understand clearly that every time a government passes laws that sanction anti-Torah behavior, everyone will suffer for that decision, period. There's no such thing as legalized sin that doesn't bring the consequences of sin upon everyone. Everyone who lives under such a law and the wages of sin is death legislatures will legislate morality, no matter what. Morality is inherent in the creation of laws. Every law reflects someone's understanding of right and wrong, right? Some understanding of truth. There's no escaping that. Every law reflects a moral code that is the source of that law. In the end, there does come a time, so we fight, we fight for the truth, but in the end, there does come a time when the best you can do is withdraw. Withdraw as much as possible from the parts with the deadly infection, if they will not come to repentance and change. And even then, the unfortunate truth is, even with that withdrawal, the unfortunate truth is that we can't entirely withdraw. And so many are finding out that, Um, We can't shelter our children from the madness out there. (coughs) The delusion is so very powerful in our times. Truly a spirit has been let loose to wreak havoc in the world. And it's supernatural. And the children are growing up within this environment that is so saturated by this evil. And the children will make many important decisions before... They have much knowledge and life experience. Parent after parent is being rejected by grown children under the woke delusion. The battlefield is bloody and getting bloodier all the time. We must be immersed in truth, and that's part of our protection. But there are parents who spent years immersing their children in truth, doing everything right, only to have their kids turn on them in a moment in the blink of an eye, leaving the parents who sacrificed so much for them standing there, heartbroken. Well, I don't have the answer here, but I know that the ultimate answer is the return of the Messiah. And so we say, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Well, with such a heavy topic, let's spend a little time looking toward the truth of the healing of the world that is also coming. A deeper magic, so to speak. The way this world is supposed to work and the way it will work, and to some degree is working among you know the believers, is that everyone is fully submitted to the Father, who is one. There is only one. And from him we receive through the Son, one spirit. And we read about this in the Bri Hadashah reading for Shoftim. And so listen to the following spoken by Yeshua and recorded in John 14. Yeshua says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be, your, uh, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. But it neither, I'm uh, sorry, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Yeshua must ask the Father to send the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit comes from the Father, but through the Son, through the Son's asking for the Father to send the Spirit. And again, in the next chapter in John, Yeshua says that he will send the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. Again, it comes from the Father through the Son. Now, here's the main point. The Spirit flowing within us and among us is the same Spirit. So the Spirit brings us into accord with one another, giving us one mind and one heart. So having one mind and one heart is good, but it doesn't stop there. right? We need to think in terms of the body, maybe, when we are reading these things. One mind, one heart but there's more, right? Uh, We need one body too, to be fully one. And the scripture tells us that in the same way that we receive one spirit, we also receive diverse gifts so that we can become one body. These gifts also come from the Father and through the Son so that we um, we can contribute as unique parts of a body, which is called the body of Messiah. So listen to the following from Ephesians 4. We're thinking about how now we're receiving different gifts from Yeshua, or through Yeshua rather, that help us to be one body. So there is one body and one spirit. But grace was given to each one, each one of us, according to the measure of Messiah's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. He gave gifts to men. So in other words, the Messiah gives us all gifts of certain forms, right? It says a measure of the Messiah's gifts. And so each of us is given uh, certain gifts and um, the measured amount of the Messiah's gift. And so with One God and one Spirit and one Lord through whom comes both the Spirit and the diverse body gifts, we truly become one, the body of the Messiah. What more do you need than one Spirit and soul and body? And so make no mistake, God will have his way in the end. It will happen. And that is what is happening now to some degree in the body of believers. We're not fully there yet, obviously, but we're on the way. And as the days grow darker and the persecution increases, the greater body of Messiah will be purged and knitted even more together. That's what one thing we ought to be looking for in these darkening days is the greater knitting together of the body of the Messiah. And so that comes along with the tribulations Um, and we're seeing those tribulations that are tearing our culture apart now, but be encouraged today that as the dark gets darker, the light gets lighter, and this is part of the hope we have for especially the younger people who have fallen into the woke trap. The two paths have never stood in starker contrast to each other. You need to look no further than the suicide statistics to see which way is death and which way is life. And so we pray now that the eyes of the younger generations would be open now to see the two paths, the path that leads to darkness and death and the path that leads to light and life. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. I've put a link to an outline of this teaching below the video. May God bless us today to be a people who take seriously the call to repentance when the opportunity is being extended to us. May we be a people who are willing to have our plans interrupted when God God sends us on a little mission. May we be a people who understand that every precious person's sin affects all of us a people who fights for truth in our world today. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.